Good afternoon. I'm Michael Desch. I'm the uh, Brian and Janelle Brady Director uh, of the Notre Dame International Security Center and also the Packy JD Professor uh, of International Affairs uh, in the Department of Political Science here at the University of uh, Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, welcome to everybody who's joined us virtually uh, for this uh, flash panel uh, entitled The Fall of Afghanistan, What Does It Mean for America and the World? Um, and uh, uh, school has just started um, here on campus. Um, and I wish uh, we were all in uh, one big room here in Jenkins Nanovic uh, so we could uh, have an in-person flash panel, but uh, uh, we have to make do uh, with this virtual panel. To make up for any defects in the uh, mode of our assemblage, uh, we have an absolutely terrific uh, group of colleagues uh, who are joining us today, who are each going to give us uh, their perspective on events in Kabul uh, over the past week uh, for about 10 minutes each. And then uh, we will have time for a brief discussion, which I'll moderate. Um, and I hope you'll uh, use the raise hand function uh, if you want to participate um, in our discussion. We're going to start out with uh, my colleague, uh, Jean Golds, who's an associate professor uh, of political science here at Notre Dame and also a principal at NDISC. He's an expert in many aspects uh, of national security studies, um, but particularly um, in the area uh, of defense economics um, and uh, grand strategy. In addition to being a very distinguished academic, uh, he also spent a couple of years in the Pentagon as a senior advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and in uh, Defense Industrial Base Policy. So he's going to kick off. He's going to be followed by uh, my colleague Mary Ellen O'Connell, the Robert and Marion Short Professor of Law and a research professor at Notre Dame's Law School uh, in International Dispute Resolution. She's also a fellow uh, of the Kroc Institute here um, at Notre Dame, and she works uh, in the area of international law in a lot of different areas for many years. She was one of the world's leading experts um, on the legality uh, of the drone war, um, but uh, she's also touched on many other areas of international law. So she'll go second. Um, our third speaker will be uh, Dina Smeltz, um, who is uh, at the uh, Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and she's a senior fellow in public opinion and foreign policy and runs the council's uh, really essential uh, efforts in the area of polling uh, the American public and now the public internationally uh, about issues 
related to uh, foreign policy um, more generally. And in fact, uh, anticipating uh, by a couple of weeks uh, the uh, dramatic events in Kabul, the Chicago Council uh, released survey results of uh, American public opinion uh, about uh, whether in fact uh, President Biden should follow through on President Trump's uh, promise to uh, 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 withdraw all American troops uh, from uh, Afghanistan uh, by August uh, 31st. And then finally, uh, I'll bat clean up and make a few remarks uh, about uh, going forward. So without further ado, let's uh, start with uh, Eugene Goltz. Hi, um, uh, welcome everyone, and uh, big thank you to Mike and Endisk for uh, organizing this uh, quick, timely panel. Um, so Mike asked me to talk about something where I have to admit I have some expertise, but it's not defense economics by a mile or grand strategy. Um, so I I'm uh, going to talk for a few minutes about Kind of what happened within Afghanistan, and um, and uh, you know how the collapse uh, came about. So just to get everyone on the same page, I assume we all know uh, uh, with what seemed to many uh, quite surprising speed, um, the Afghan government that the United States backed for the last twenty years collapsed. Um, uh, President Ghani fled. Afghanistan and uh, the Taliban are now in control of Kabul. And of course, there are these chaotic scenes uh, at the Kabul International Airport where US troops are on the military side of the airport. There's also a commercial side that um, uh, is ringed by people trying to get out of Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, uh, and it all looks bleak and terrible. Um, um, we've probably all seen the um, images of helicopters ferrying people from the U.S. Embassy to um, the uh, airport to leave Afghanistan in kind of an eerie um, uh, similarity to exactly what the president promised would not happen, an, eager, an eerie similarity to Saigon 1975. Um, so uh, I'm going to try to talk about how that came about, and I'm going to do it by very quickly um, uh, complaining about, I think, five misperceptions or myths, so maybe two minutes on each, of um, with, with some ideas that seem to be circulating in the ether that I think are, are, are not right to try to give us correct perspective on what happened. Um, and so um, these are going to be based in some cases on images that we see, in some cases on statements that people have made. Um, and the first one is, is the complaint uh, which I think is a false complaint that um, the United States engaged in a quote precipitous withdrawal. So we hear that word precipitous fairly often that we that we suddenly dropped everything and ran uh, in a surprising way. Uh, we didn't plan for anything and we, we left a big mess um, that uh, we, we should have just uh, stuck it out, had a conditions based withdrawal, done things more gracefully over time. Um, and I just I don't understand um, how you can apply the word precipitous to this withdrawal. Um, 
I mean, at some point, people are going to have to leave in the moment when they, you know, from the moment they get on the airplane to the moment the airplane takes off and leaves the country isn't going to be that long. But I mean, it's been clear that the United States has been trying to leave Afghanistan for, you know, at least more, well, more than a decade, right? There's nothing precipitous about a, about a long, drawn out, grinding retreat or exit from the country that, um, uh, has been going on for a long time. And um, in fact, this is one that was announced, you know, repeatedly. If you remember, um, we negotiated uh, with the Taliban for months, reached an agreement in February 2020 that we would be out by May of 2021. Um, and uh, so President Trump uh, uh, and his administration reached this agreement. And then, you know, 2021 rolled around and we decided the new presidential administration needed to think about it for a minute. And so they thought about it for a minute and they delayed the process. They made it not precipitous. They made it even longer. They delayed it till August 31st. But these dates have been announced months in advance. No one is shocked. Um, so I, I just think the reason people are trying to cast this as a precipitous withdrawal is, is part of a a constant critique by people who like to support interventions that when interventions don't go well, it's because they were badly implemented. And they're saying, well, these guys didn't plan, they withdrew very rapidly and we would do it better, right? So next time we'll get it right is the, is the idea that they're, they're, they're trying to, to deflect the problems onto precipitousness or to criticize the administration for being precipitous when it really was nothing of the kind. The second point um, that I think people have said, which is clearly false, that I think we all need to understand, is people have said this was an unpredictable collapse. Um, so you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, saying, you know, no one thought the Afghan government would collapse this fast. Um, there, were, there were these intelligence projections that people cited in public that the government would last at least a year, and then they walked it back to you know, six months or three months, but nobody thought it would collapse, you know, imminently. Um, but this can't possibly be true. Well, so now we know there's, there's leaks of actual intelligence assessments that said it's possible they would last a year and it's possible that it would collapse quickly, right? They, they made projections of multiple scenarios. But, um, but just the idea that a collapse like this would be unpredictable in the Afghan context also just doesn't make any sense. This is normal Afghan warfare. This has happened repeatedly since the Soviets withdrew in the early 1990s, uh, when the Taliban came in in 1996, when we came in in 2001. It's exactly the same kind of timing that the country turns on a dime. So, um, you know, in 2001, we somehow convinced ourselves that we won quickly in Afghanistan through a new and revolutionary way of warfare where American air power and a few special forces would back forces on the ground and quickly turn an insurgency into a victory. And we pat ourselves on the back quite aggressively about that. But of course, that's exactly what's happened right now without the air power, right? It just turns out that in Afghanistan, things flip-flop pretty quickly when the political situation changes. And that worked for us in 2001, and it worked against us in 2021. Um, uh, and I just want to quickly read a great quote from the New York Times, right? So the quote is, 
There were no pitched battles are going on. The Taliban are advancing on the basis of what appears to be defections or desertions. This is not a military maneuver in the classic sense. That could very easily have been a description of what happened a few weeks ago, but it was actually published in the New York Times September 26, 1996, when the Taliban came to power previously. This is exactly the playbook. Third point, um, people impugn, they blame the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police for, for the sudden collapse. And they impugn them by saying, it's not our fault in America, the Afghans didn't fight for their country. We've heard that phrase several times. This statement just doesn't seem right to me. The country of Afghanistan still exists, right? They, it's not a matter of not fighting for their country. The only possible threat to the existence of the country of Afghanistan was an occupying foreign power coming in. Now, I don't think that's what the United States was, but it's clear that some people in Afghanistan perceived the threat to their country was us and that they were fighting for their country by trying to chase us out. Now, the Afghan National Army, they never had the opportunity to fight for their country one way or the other. They were fighting against a domestic group and um, what they were being asked to fight for was a particular government. But that government was fantastically corrupt and didn't have meaningful institutions. And in fact, the Afghan National Army and especially the Afghan National Police were a great example of the corruption in that they had many, many, maybe 50 to 70% of their membership were only on paper. They were made up people getting drawing pay that was benefiting the local warlord or whoever, like this was not a real army. And of course, our military that was training them knew that and knew it for years. It's very clear from what are called the Afghan papers, the Afghanistan papers that the Washington Post released. Fourth point, um, people argue that Biden blundered, that the chaos at the airport is caused by his failure to start the evacuation sooner that we should have been evacuating Americans and loyal Afghans um, you know, all summer long. And um, I just don't think you could have avoided the chaos by starting to do that. I think two things. The first is you have to have a little sympathy for President Biden's position in that um, he did not want to admit that this was just a loss. The war didn't, we didn't win the war and we got to leave in a big hurry. And that was going to be ugly no matter what. So he was trying to say, hey, they'll hang on for a year. We have time to get people out later. This is a political statement. But the truth is that in early withdrawal, if we started bringing out lots of Americans earlier or lots of Afghans working for the Afghan government earlier, that would have just advanced to the date of the collapse of the Afghan government. All of the deals that were made with the Taliban just would have been triggered three months earlier when everybody knew the jig was up. And um, you know, it's, it's just false to claim that there was some planning option that could have made this look pretty. The last point I'll make uh, briefly, because it's really about the, the future, I'm stepping on Mike's talk, is that um, uh, Afghanistan is now gonna become a dangerous safe haven for terrorists attacking the United States. Um, and that you know, this withdrawal is a big disaster. Now, the withdrawal is very unpleasant. There's no doubt about that. But if terrorist safe havens were important to attacking the United States, 
very quickly, two things. First, the Taliban already ran much of the geographic area of Afghanistan before this sudden collapse that got to Kabul. Like there was plenty of real estate that would already have been a safe haven against the United States. And so this doesn't make that big a difference from that perspective. And second, it's quite clear that the Taliban and even Al Qaeda have become quite fixated on local fights. They're not trying to find a safe haven to come fight the United States. They have other people in the region that they want to go after. And one thing that's very clear is, you know, just a week ago, the Taliban executed the leader of the local chapter of ISIS in Afghanistan, right? Their fight is there, right? Now, maybe sometime in the future, something would happen where there could be an attack on the, I can't guarantee there are no attacks on the United States, but there's no reason to believe that the rapid collapse or the rapid US withdrawal from Afghanistan would create a more dangerous safe haven problem or attract more attacks on the United States. So those are my five points. Mike's mad at me for taking a little extra time. I'm sorry. And uh, Mary Ellen is up. I could never be mad at you. <laughs> Mary Ellen, take it away. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not mad at all, Jean, because, Eugene, because I think that you um, really set the stage for us well. You gave us a lot of facts on exactly the points people are so interested in at the moment. Um, and I really agree with all of your comments about uh, the rapid withdrawal and seeing this coming and so forth. I'm going to take a big step back and give us some more context over the 20 years of um, what led to this failure and hopefully give some indications of lessons learned that uh, will, will um, be picked up by Mike and maybe Dina um, so we can avoid exactly this kind of catastrophe in the future. Um, my very first published article, uh, academic article, was on the Soviet conflict in um, Afghanistan. So I've been watching this region, studying it, and realizing that it is a very bad place to use military force in violation of international law. That's what the Soviets did. That's what we ended up doing. And my biggest fear, and I'll just put it out there to begin with, is that we're going to draw the wrong lessons. I think Gene already pointed to this when he said people are saying um, that it's the way we handled the drawdown that it was too precipitous. These are defenders of intervention. And I think if we take those as the lessons from Afghanistan, as opposed to the lesson that using military force unlawfully, as we have done all these years, was never going to lead to a better outcome. And that's the lesson to take forward. The use of military force has to be done with the greatest of care and always commensurate with the rule of law. If the United States is going to stand for the principle that it, principles that it was founded on, and that is uh, law over um, other kinds of policies. So the United States went to war in Afghanistan in um, October 2001 under a theory of self-defense. We actually had a United Nations Security Council resolution that followed the 9-11 attacks saying that while military force is in general prohibited under the United Nations Charter in Article 2, Paragraph 4, the U.S. could use the exception for self-defense in Article 51. But note, that's all the Security Council said. A lot of people misread or exa uh, exaggerated what the Security Council had mandated um, in September 2001. It was only that the US had suffered a significant 
armed attack. It, the council never said against whom the United States could carry out its lawful self-defense. And there are other conditions besides the existence of the armed attack, which the Security Council had recognized. There are just as important as the armed attack is knowing who is responsible for the armed attack so that you can shape your lawful action and self-defense against the perpetrator. How do you get a defensive effect? How do you get the, the benefit of that right to use force in military uh, self-defense if you're not aiming at the actual perpetrators of the armed attack that triggered your right in the first place? And here's where the US made such a fundamental error. We decided that it was not really Al-Qaeda, which is not the government of a country. They didn't control space, but they didn't control Afghanistan for sure. But the Taliban, because they were hosting Al-Qaeda, that might have been sufficient for directing our war of self-defense against Afghanistan if the Taliban had really ordered Al-Qaeda to carry out these attacks. But if you've read Lawrence Wright's Looming Tower or some of the other really excellent work on the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, that was a fraught one by the time of 9-11. Mullah Omar was trying to get the um, Al-Qaeda out because they were abusing his hospitality in running their uh, terrorist activities from Afghanistan. So, um, the other problems with the U.S.'s campaign against Afghanistan was not only we were aiming at the wrong target, but any use of force has to be necessary to accomplish the defensive purpose and proportionate to the injury suffered. So were we really going to get a defensive effect against Al-Qaeda by going to war with the Taliban? Even if you can argue that we would have by removing the host and therefore um, putting Al-Qaeda on the run, as Colin Powell said, that element of military force was only going to um, be valid and lawful until December 2001 when the Taliban fled Kabul and were no longer the government. In fact, Colin Powell told the press, remember he was Secretary of State then, told the press that we would be leaving just as we had left um, Iraq after the liberation of Kuwait, as soon as Kuwait was liberated. We didn't need to go to Baghdad and do regime change. Colin Powell was right. That's all you can do lawfully under self-defense. But here's where things really went off the rails. Colin Powell was overruled by the neoconservative uh, members of the Bush administration. Vice President Cheney, Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, National Security Advisor Rice, they wanted to do regime change. They came up with this inflated, exaggerated idea of self-defense that you had to actually remake Afghanistan to get defense of the United States, to ensure that it would never be a safe haven again. Well, international law does not allow states to go in and re-engineer other countries because they might have some future possibility of getting a better regime there that treats them better and, and, and poses no threats. How could that ever be the law? And it wasn't. So by December 2001, by failing to leave and by setting up this entire construct of a war on terror in which we were taking the fight to so many other countries unlawfully, taking prisoners, bringing them to Guantanamo Bay where they were tortured and, and, and never uh, allowed to go to trial, 
never freed after 20 years. This really set the United States on this path of failure that we've seen so dramatically in the last few weeks. We were in Afghanistan at that point after December 2001 with no more legal right than the Soviets had been when they invaded in 79, executing a uh, assassinating an Afghan leader, putting their own puppet person in place who invited them in. So that's where we were after our puppet got put in place, Hamid Karzai in mid 2002. And he then invited us in to, to defend the government against um, the Taliban and other enemies in the civil war. Well, international law has never permitted intervention in a civil war. Abraham Lincoln told the British not to intervene in the American Civil War because intervention by outside fighters in civil war tips the balance of a conflict that should be determined by the people themselves and inevitably escalates the fighting. That's why international law has a clear rule. Outside intervention in civil war is prohibited. This needs to be kept as limited in terms of fighting and escalation as possible and the people themselves have to determine their own outcome. Otherwise, it's a neo-imperial or an imperial power grab. And that's what ended up happening after 2002. The international community comes in, the UN Security Council is trying to uh, defend what's going on there. But as Jean already pointed out, and this will be my last sentence because Mike has told me the time is up. As Jean has already pointed out, Afghanistan was a divided country among its people. And those who were fighting to get the foreigners out were the ones who were successful. We now need to turn to non-use of military force to support human rights, to try to repair the damage that we've helped do in Afghanistan. It's the only way forward. And now I turn to Dina. Okay, hi everybody. Thank you again, Mike and Endis for hosting this really timely and important topic. Um, Jean, I'm sorry to say that as far as American public opinion is concerned, it has been swayed to some extent by some of the misperceptions that you um, point out. However, there are, is uh, some evidence too that Americans understand that, uh, or they think it was inevitable that this would be a messy process. Um, so we could, as, as Mike said early on, the Chicago Council does a survey every year. It just so happened that we just came out of the field on July 26, and we had some new data that showed seven in 10 Americans at that time supported the withdrawal of the troops from Afghanistan. Um, that was while the withdrawal was happening, but it was before the Taliban took over many of the cities and then... Um, Hit the situation that we're at today. Um, but polls that have been conducted since then show also majority still support the withdrawal. Um, it's lower, but they uh, still nonetheless support the withdrawal of the troops. 63% in a CBS poll conducted August 18th to 20th um, supported the withdrawal and but 70% said the removal of US troops should have been handled better. A Reuters poll that was conducted August 16th, 61% support the US completely withdrawing the troops on schedule, but, oh, and 68% agree that the war in Afghanistan was going to end badly no matter, um, no matter when the United States left. 
Um, and then August 12th to the 16th, there was an AP NORC poll. 62% of Americans say the war in Afghanistan is not, has not been worth fighting versus 35% who said it was. Now that's really similar because our polls, the Chicago Council polls conducted in 2020, 2014, and 2012 all showed exactly that same number. Two thirds um, said the war was not worth fighting in each of those years, which is what APNORC just found now. And that made me think and look back at some of the data from Iraq and Afghanistan, because Gallup, fortunately for us, has asked the same exact question about whether, it, to some degree, the intro to the questions changed, but it was, it was the war worth fighting or not. And for Vietnam, the highest percentage point that said it was a mistake was 60 to 61%, and that was in the last two years of the war. For Iraq, um, the percentage who said the war was a mistake rose as high as 63% in 2008. But then recently that has actually fallen to around 50% for Iraq um, after the withdrawal. And Afghanistan in Gallup, the highest percentage that said it is a mistake was 48% in 2014 and 46% uh, most recently in July of 2021, but uh, before, again, for the most recent event. So actually, and there's some indication that um, they at least think the initial premise of the war was more worthwhile than the other two wars, at least if you compare the Gallup numbers. Um, in the meantime, um, Americans do support sending troops back in for evacuations. 75% in a Reuters poll said we should send additional troops into secure key facilities until the evacuations are complete. 50% even say that we should send troops back in to fight the Taliban. Um, a CBS news survey found that 55% said that some US troops should have stayed there in the first place. Um, and that has some truth in several surveys when people asked, should we withdraw? Um, should we withdraw completely? Should we uh, leave some troops in place for counterterrorism and anti-insurgency? Or should we not withdraw troops at all? Um, the middle category of leaving some troops usually gets some degree of support. The last time we asked it in 2014, about a third said that we should have some troops stay behind. And um, only a third say that Biden has a clear plan for evacuating American civilians. That was a CBS news survey. Refugees, I'm happy. It's an encouraging sign that really large majorities have between 70 and 80%, uh, 83% say that uh, the United States should take in Afghan refugees, those who had worked with the US, um, either with the US government or with the US military, that's actually pretty high. Um, we have a poll in the field now asking about Afghan civilians in general, not just those who worked with the states, but generally Americans are at about 40%. When we asked about Syrian refugees, about 42% supported the United States taking them in, so that's pretty high. And then I just wanted to quickly talk about Biden's ratings because there's a lot of focus on that as well. And um, they have slipped, but it's not completely clear 
whether it's all because of Afghanistan and also how enduring it all depends what happens next and, and later on in uh, Biden's tenure, but um, CBS approval ratings have found a drop to about 50% in August. It was 58 in July. 47% um, approved of his handling of the withdrawal down from 60% in July. Uh, but you know what? Similar percentages, 48 and 47% think Biden has handled um, relations with China and Russia similarly. So it's about 47, 48% for that too. Um, also in the CBS poll, uh, they found that 60% of Americans blame the Afghan government for uh, the Taliban taking over. 55% blame the Afghan army and that's more than Biden, which was at 36% and just 25% blame Trump. They didn't ask about the Taliban at all in that question. They didn't ask about George W. Bush either, which might've been interesting. Um, and then, so there were disapproval ratings on in a couple of other polls, um, under half for the first time in some of these polls, but there were also uh, even bigger drops on Biden's handling of COVID, which was a 16 percentage point drop and a five percentage point drop on economy. And then um, NBC found a five percentage point drop on his handling of the withdrawal. So again, um, more disapprove than approve of the way that Biden has handled it, but they don't really question the withdrawal itself. Um, and then I, again, was curious about Vietnam and Iraq. So I looked back at the low points for presidents then and the Vietnam comparison, LBJ, the lowest point um, for his rating was 27% in August, 1967. Um, but that was a really low point. And um, in Bush, June 2005 was at 40%. So Biden's a bit higher than those. Um, and um, finally, just wanted to talk about terrorism and the Taliban in generally. Americans, when we last asked about uh, the Taliban possibly taking over in Afghanistan, Americans didn't feel that threatened by it. And overall, in terms of international terrorism, uh, the percentage of Americans who say that international terrorism is a threat to the United States is the lowest it has ever been since we've asked about it in 1998. So it's still a majority, but it's, it's at its lowest point. And Americans now say that domestic terrorism or domestic violent extremism is a, a bigger issue for us than international terrorism. That's to some extent, um, could be taken as uh, a comment on at least for um, wiping out some of the Al-Qaeda terrorism that the Afghan military project was successful. Um, and so, yeah, I think the bottom line is that for Americans, it's, it's not clear to what extent this will stick with Biden, kind of depends how things go in the next couple of days and continuing on. Um, and they don't really question why we got involved. I think more about why we were in it for so long and what our purpose was, why, why we were there for so long. So now I'll turn it back to Mike. 
Thank you very much, Dina. Uh, that's uh, terrific. And uh, my uh, not only Dina, but also uh, Mary Ellen and Jean have uh, set a high bar for me, not only in terms of the quality of their uh, remarks, um, but also in their succinctness. So I'll try to be even more succinct uh, since this is a flash panel. Um, by the way, the idea for this uh, flash panel initially came from Mary Ellen. So uh, the only thing I get credit for is listening to Mary Ellen. And I always listen to Mary Ellen. I don't always agree with her, but I always listen to her. So just very briefly, I want to say a few, few things about uh, what the, the fall of uh, Afghanistan means for the United States going forward. Um, and I think there is a, a general sense, at least uh, on the inside the Beltway swamp plutoc or, uh, puntocracy, uh, that this has been a disaster. Uh, former British uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair, who's not inside the Beltway, but I think wishes he was, uh, uh, said that uh, this the uh, president's uh, decision to go ahead with this withdrawal was one more manifestation of the imbecility uh, of ending endless wars. And I think there are a lot of people on uh, the other side of the uh, aisle uh, from many of our speakers, including ourselves, who would agree with that. They feel that the uh, precipitous collapse uh, of the pro-American government to the Taliban has undermined US credibility and empowered uh, adversaries like China and Russia. Uh, they uh, say that they think that, uh, that this has opened the door for a greater international terrorist threat. Uh, the evidence that Dina suggests is that the American public, I think, is more measured on that. Um, and finally, uh, they point to uh, the real human rights problems uh, that a return to Taliban rule um, creates. But it was the iconic image um, uh, in 1975 of an Air America helicopter lifting uh, Vietnamese off the roof of a CIA facility across town in Saigon that I think epitomized for a lot of people um, that what we're looking at here is the fall of Saigon too. And of course, the heart-wrenching images uh, of Afghan civilians on the runway trying to grab onto uh, the side of uh, C-17 um, transport planes sort of reinforce that. Um, but I think the image uh, of the fall of Saigon as somehow marking the high water or the the high water mark of American power um, is misleading. And moreover, when you think about it, uh, a scant 10 years after the fall of Saigon, the United States had come back so much that it won the Cold War uh, without uh, firing a shot. Indeed, the Cold War was not won or lost in Vietnam. It was won, uh, as George Kennan predicted at the beginning of the Cold War, in the industrial centers of the world, Western Europe, uh, Northeast Asia, and, and to an extent um, in the Persian Gulf as well. As long as we were able to uh, maintain 
the independence uh, of those areas of the world, uh, the Soviet Union uh, was never going to be able to become the threat that we feared it might become. The other big development, uh, of course, of the Cold War was the Sino-Soviet split, which President Richard Nixon and his national security, uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, played uh, to great effect. Indeed, the, the bad thing that came out of the spectacular end or victory uh, of, by the US and its allies in the Cold War was not defeat, but rather uh, a sense uh, among Americans uh, that we could do no wrong, that the American century uh, meant that uh, we could make the uh, remake the world in our image. Um, and so I think um, both the fact that Vietnam uh, didn't really affect uh, America's standing in the world um, and that the key dangers to our standing in the world were, as Pogo uh, famously said in the comic strip, we've met the enemy um, and he is us, uh, I think are uh, worth keeping in mind. For me, um, the uh, biggest benefit uh, of the withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan was that it was an important step um, in resolving the strategic insolvency that the United States had put itself in after 25 years uh, of endless wars. Um, cutting our losses in Afghanistan made strategic sense because we hadn't achieved other than driving the Taliban out of power almost right away. Um, our longer term objectives of building a nation in Afghanistan where not one had never been before, or much less making it a robust uh, democracy. Um, and secondly, the world of 2021 presents very different strategic challenges to the United States, uh, almost none of which uh, are really connected in any way to uh, Afghanistan. So the puzzle for me is why it's so hard inside the Beltway uh, for many American leaders to think strategically uh, about uh, what America had at stake in Afghanistan. Um, and we actually have a tradition uh, of what I think is uh, very sound strategic leadership or a strategic uh, uh, analysis, uh, not someone like Alfred Thayer Mahan, um, but rather two other great American grand strategists. Uh, first, Mark Twain, uh, and remember uh, his character, Tom Sawyer, um, in uh, one of the Twain novels who had to whitewash the fence um, and ended up doing it by getting everybody else to do it. That I think is a grand strategic approach uh, that would serve the United States uh, very well. The second grand strategic thinker I'd commend to you uh, would be uh, the country and Western singer, uh, Kenny Rogers. Remember his hit song, The Gambler. Um, and what Rogers advised uh, us, and I'd apply to grand strategy, but many American strategists have been loath to take this advice, is you got to know when to hold them, you got to know when to fold them, you got to know when to walk away, and you got to know when to run. And I would submit 
that the evidence uh, presented by uh, my three previous colleagues and what I've seen in Afghanistan uh, over the last 20 years uh, makes uh, Roger's uh, grand strategy eminently sensible. And with that, uh, I'm going to stop the flash panel, which has actually uh, 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 not been uh, uh, all that quick, um, and solicit some flash questions uh, from people in the audience. And if you want to be recognized, I'd ask you to raise your hand. I'll recognize you. Unmute yourself, ask your question quickly, um, and then uh, move on if you would, please. Um, so the uh, floor is open for uh, questions uh, or comments. Um, and if I don't see any, uh, I may go back and uh, hum a few bars uh, uh, of Kenny Rogers and uh, other uh, country and Western songs. Um, and you don't want that. Uh, so uh, please, uh, anybody uh, that would like to get into the uh, conversation, uh, go to the uh, 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 reactions uh, uh, button on the bottom of your screen um, and raise your hand um, and I'll recognize you. In the meantime, if uh, Jean or Mary Ellen or, oh, no, we have a, uh, uh, a uh, questioner. Uh, I want to recognize uh, Colonel Chris Dickey. Uh, Chris, go ahead. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Desch and, and panel. Uh, quick question. Does, does this, uh, whether it's a fold or a run, a run away, does this enable us, enable uh, specifically the military to um, shift more and more fully to a great power competition? And when will we see that strategy in the Beltway, uh, if my question makes sense, over. Great, uh, thank you very much. Um, Gene, do you wanna take that? Um, sure, uh, thanks for the question. I mean, I, I'm sure that there are some people um, in the administration and in the Beltway who are thinking exactly along these lines that we need to disentangle from forever wars to gear up like we need a mobilization they would say for great power competition this is going to take a lot of attention and some resources and so getting out of Afghanistan will just enable that just, I, I think it's attention is the is the biggest is the biggest factor um, I don't think it's essential um, uh, it's not an essential link. Like we could get out of Afghanistan without investing a lot more in planning to fight China, or we could also fight China while we wanted to fight Afghanistan. It'd just be a little harder. We'd have to mobilize more. But, but your intuition, I think, matches what a lot of people in Washington think is going to be good about this. Great. Uh, thanks, Gene. We've got a question in the chat from Kenzie Phillips, who asks whether uh, we see U.S. competitors using um, our uh, hasty and uh, ignominious uh, retreat from Af Afghanistan as a way to show American democracy's uh, weaknesses, and how would one uh, counter those claims? Um, and uh, I'll take I'm, a quick whack at this um, and then let- I'd be happy to as well, Mike. Uh, yeah, and then let uh, Mary Ellen um, 
uh, talk about that as well. The, the idea that America's adversaries are, uh, especially China and Russia or North Korea and Iran, are looking at Afghanistan and judging uh, our medal uh, on the basis of what we do is a widely uh, believed uh, proposition, but one which 40 years uh, of pretty in-depth investigation uh, has called into uh, question. Uh, the Soviet Union, for example, had about uh, a half hour of glee with the fall of Saigon, and then they realized that the United States wasn't going away in the important parts of the world. Mary Ellen, how do you uh, respond? Yeah, I think this um, responds to both your question and to, um, to your comments and to the two questions we've had. It's imperative right now that the United States move, that Biden really shape an effective follow-on policy. That's the, the best way to respond to all the negatives that are going on right now. Mike, let me emphasize how the United States moved beyond Vietnam and recaptured that stature that got our allies back on board in a, in a peaceful and effective response to the Soviet challenge. And that was Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was president after Vietnam. He set the country on a better path. He's the one who signed the human rights um, uh, treaties. He's the one who helped start the Helsinki movement, which really was the grassroots answer to the Soviet authoritarianism that we're only now seeing break down at this point in time because the United States has not continued to support international law and human rights. Biden can get back to that. That is really the only way forward for this country and the world. I heard Gene say, fight a war with China. With China. We don't wanna fight a war with China. How extraordinary would that be? How devastating for the world? We need to be focused on climate change. We yeah. need well, to he, and to be fair to Gene, he doesn't want to fight. No, a war I know with he doesn't China want either. to. But why are we talking about scenarios in which that's the case? Yes, we need to redirect our military, but they can be in support of diplomacy. China is pressing on all fronts. One of the ways that the Navy has effectively supported international law is through its maritime boundaries program. That's that's force in support of law and diplomacy. That's the only answer right now for Biden. And trying to think in these old uh, interventionist, failed military terms is not going to lead us to where we want to go. It's just we're just going to recede as one of these second class post imperial powers. Thank you very much, Mary Ellen. Uh, Robert Ralston, a Hans J. Morgenthau fellow. Uh, uh, Robert, go ahead, please. Yeah, thanks, everyone. I really appreciated this panel. Um, I was wondering, I was watching the British Parliament debate the Afghanistan withdrawal and there was a lot of contempt for the United States and for Biden in particular during it. Um, I was wondering, you know, the sort of flip side to the adversary question is the allies one. And we've seen the polling that suggests that America's image has rebounded with Biden being back in office. Um, but I'm kind of wondering what the, what people think are going to be the takeaway in terms of international public opinion for the U.S. withdrawal. It seems like at one, at one stage, you know, uh, everyone thinks that the U.S. should not be going around being the world's policeman, and that's sort of a negative thing. On the other hand, when the U.S. does sort of adopt a, a, a little less of a world police um, posture, it seems as though now there's backlash on that, so it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, so I was wondering kind of what the international repercussions might be and 
why you think the allies um, are so disdainful over this move and, and yeah. Great, great question, Robert. And you said the P word, uh, so that can only be directed at uh, Dina Smeltz. Yeah, thank you for your question. Um, yeah, uh, I think on the follow, following the heels of Trump, the allies um, are definitely happier to have uh, somebody in the White House who has um, advocated the importance of allies and things like that. I think, you know, it'll, it'll depend uh, kind of like what Mary Ellen said, what comes next and what uh, what the United States focuses on with allies. I don't know to what extent, uh, you know, I guess I assume that there was a lot of discussion with our other NATO allies about the withdrawal. Uh, I don't know if they were as surprised at the leadership of some of our allies as um, average publics probably are, but it's definitely called into question among I, I was just having lunch with uh, somebody from the consulate, uh, the Korean consulate, or the credibility of uh, U.S. guarantees and the United States as a, as a security ally and partner. But I, th I think it depends what we focus on next and what we pivot to next. If we show that we are serious about uh, renewing an agreement with Iran, if we show that we want to take leadership, global leadership, and work with others on climate change, on delivering COVID vaccines to the countries who need it, um, that could help. But I think relative to the administration that just left, um, I think American, the American image is still in a better place even with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Great, uh, thank you very much. I mean, the great thing about a flash panel is it gives us the opportunity to be nimble um, and get on top of uh, literally breaking news stories. The bad thing about a flash panel is it's got to be in a flash. Um, and we're right up against um, our uh, one hour time frame. And uh, uh, I also should point out that Notre Dame's opening mass um, is uh, a scant half hour. Uh, away now at 5.30, and I would be in real trouble if I allowed uh, these secular proceedings to uh, go on too long um, and uh, keep all of you uh, from your uh, primary religious duty to uh, attend uh, the opening mass, which I'm also informed is uh, going to be uh, live streamed, although I hope they have uh, better luck with the uh, uh, Zoom than uh, we've had. Um, it'll take some divine intervention, uh, I suspect, in order to ensure that. Um, so at this point, it just uh, remains for me uh, again to thank Mary Ellen O'Connell for suggesting um, that we uh, do this panel and uh, joining us with her uh, usual verve and flair as a uh, commentator. Uh, my colleague, Jean Goltz, uh, who uh, is on research leave and also home 
with a brand new baby. Thank you for uh, coming uh, out of uh, not retirement, but leave uh, to uh, uh, be an important part of this panel. And finally, uh, thank you also to uh, our good friend, uh, Dina Smeltz at the Chicago Council for Global Affairs. Uh, the uh, work that they do on uh, uh, foreign policy, public opinion analysis is indispensable. But there's so many other great things that we've done with Dina and her colleagues, especially uh, the president, Evo Dalder, that we're really uh, thrilled to have you as uh, a partner uh, there uh, downtown in Chicago. So thank you to all of you uh, who've made time this afternoon uh, to join us uh, on this flash panel. And uh, have uh, for the students, have a great fall semester. Uh, and for all of the rest of you, uh, go Irish. And uh, hope to see you again uh, at an NDISC event. Uh, and hopefully fewer and fewer of them will be virtu uh, virtual and more will be in person. Goodbye. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>